0: I have two things um, I want to touch on tonight. First is uh, why it's more loving to confront and object than to acquiesce. Um, And the second is out of Romans 8, kind of in honor of uh, Easter week. Um, Acquiesce means to um, submit, to lay down, without a fight. Um, not to object, but just to go along with whatever um, is pushed against you, so just for definition's sake. So first I want to start, before we get to Romans 8, I want to spend a few minutes just looking at why is it more loving to confront and to object than it is to acquiesce. So the first thing I want to do is just take a quick look at, at Jesus and the people that he confronted um, in his life. I think we're familiar that he confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was very confrontational with that group. They were the religious folks. They thought they had it together, you know, and so he he um, he was very confrontational. Matthew 23, the seven woes, is a very powerful illustration of Jesus' opinion for those who believe that they've just got it all together. They don't really need God. They're above everyone else. Um, but I think right now, culturally, Christ, as Christians, we've been kind of backed into this corner where we don't feel like we can say a whole lot about anything. Um, we've kind of been told, you can't you can't say this to this group, you can't say this to this group, and really, the only place we feel like we can do any confrontation is within the church, because we go, oh, you know, Jesus, he's confronting the religious people, so we're really good at beating the crap out of the church, um, but... I think often it's wrongfully motivated. And I think we get that wrong often as well. And largely, there are entire groups of people that we never declare the truths of the gospel to, that we never declare the truths of scripture to because we've been um, intimidated. And and so we just kind of, we acquiesce. We go along with the the winds of uh, the culture. So quickly, Jesus, he confronted his mom. Some of us are good at family confrontations. Some of us are better at confronting than we are encouraging. First, become a good encourager. Um, I'd I'd make that point initially. And once you're really good at building people up, then you know, learn to confront. Confrontation is good. But Jesus confronts his mom. He starts when he's 12 years old. Uh, Remember when the mom, mom? You remember his mom, Mary? Okay, yep. Uh, Mary leaves him you know at the temple and she comes back and she's like where were you and he's like woman don't you know I had to be about my father's business (laughs) can you imagine being 12 years old telling your mom that but Jesus is already starting to move into this authoritative position where he's he's laying down the law and he's he's right and he's not afraid to confront his own mother Later in in the uh, Gospels, we see where Jesus' mother and brothers are coming to him, and he's teaching all these people. And when they come, Jesus, and they say, Hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. And he says, These who do the will of my father are my mother and, and my brothers. And so again, he's confronting his mother indirectly, and he's saying, Just because you bore me doesn't mean that I'm going to drop everything and run to you. Those who do the will of my father are my mother and, and brothers. And so his mother he's confronting. His disciples, obviously, I think this is pretty straightforward. It was pretty much constant that if you were hanging out with Jesus as a disciple, you were get confront, getting confronted about stuff pretty much daily. Um, you know, the more, um, the more engaged you were in relationship with him, it appears, the more you got confronted about your own life's issues. Which is really, really good news if you view discipline in a healthy light. But if you don't view discipline in a healthy light, you're going to be miserable all the time. But discipline, as we know from Hebrews, is a sign of love. And so when Jesus confronts you or disciplines you, it's a sign of his love for you. It's not a sign of rejection. It's actually a sign, the writer of Hebrews says, of his embrace. So frequency of confrontation from God is actually a sign of his love. If any of you guys actually went and watched the Job, um, God could have left Job alone video, one of the punchlines in there was, God is showing his commitment to you by confronting you and by refusing to leave you alone. Being left alone or acquiescing is a sign of love or hatred even, you could say. James and John were confronted Um, All the disciples repeatedly, multiple occasions, regarding their little faith. The rich young ruler. Now we start getting into those who are not followers. Okay, So we, we know about the group of people that we can confront that are followers of Jesus and they're in the church. We know we can confront them about their life's issues. That's where we feel comfortable. But we kind of look at the outside the church picture and we go, eh. I don't know if we're able to say anything about what's happening out here. And we get really antsy and nervous. And then if we get bullied at all, we just back down and we don't say anything. The rich young ruler is an example of an individual who wasn't really following Jesus. And he shows up and he wants to know what it takes to have eternal life. And Jesus confronts him in the issue which is most dear to his heart. In this case, it's money. Go and give away everything you have come and follow me, and he went away very sad. What we see here is, first of all, we can't just use a blanket formula as to how you confront in any given situation or whether you can confront in any given situation. You have to be in communion with the Holy Spirit, and confrontation should be not necessarily always the issue that's at hand, but the issue that's going to address someone's heart. So, in this case, this guy's asking about eternal life, and Jesus responds by telling him to abandon his money so he he didn't talk about eternal life; he talked about money. Um, so, one thing I want to point out about how we confront those that are not in the church um, lies in a kind of in a contextual basis because. We have to understand that when Jesus was in um, Israel at the time that he walked on the earth, the context of the culture was very different than the context of the culture in which we live. And the, there was an underlying religiosity about those people. They were Jews, and that meant a lot. And the Pharisees had power because they were a ruling religious group. They had a lot of power in the country because it was a religious country. So you didn't live in that area at that time and have no religious conscience whatsoever. That's very different than the world in which we live today. See, you think about, like, we we look at Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery, and we go, see how Jesus handled them? He He was so merciful, he was so gentle, and that's absolutely true, he was. But in both of their cases, they knew they were doing wrong in God's sight. They knew what they were doing violated God's way of doing things because that was the culture in which they lived. It would have been like um, the United States in the forties, the fifties. There were just things you didn't do. You know, there there wasn't swearing on TV. You know, if someone said "gosh," it was a big deal. Um, it was you know, June Cleaver and Leave it to Beaver, Um, that was the, the way of life. And these people, they had a real consciousness and awareness of having to live up to the law. It was always around them. The temple was in the center of everything, remember? You had to walk by it, so you're always thinking about these things. You were always being reminded about God and his ways and his law. So you weren't really an adulteress in this setting without being aware that you were doing something wrong. And so when the adulteress is brought before Jesus, obviously she's been caught in the act, but she's living a lifestyle she's aware is wrong. And so when he goes to her, she already has been convicted of her sin. She's aware of what she's done. And so his, his response to her is, you know, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. He doesn't, go, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, just as a side note, he doesn't tell her, go ahead and continue on with what you're doing I love it just the way, go, sin no more. He tells her to separate herself from that sin. Today's culture doesn't have that same underlying religiosity. Um, Our culture today would be much more um, like the Gentile culture of the first century, the Greek culture of the first century. Um, And one, one case that I want to point out, is when Jesus encounters a Gentile woman in Mark chapter 7. She's a Syrophoenician, okay? So she's Greek in her religion, and do you guys remember this story? So the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, verse 24, and, and Jesus is in the region of um, Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. He, he could not be hidden. Immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, some translations say a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay. First, she's Greek by religion. She's Syrophoenician. She lived in a culture where idolatry was the norm. Not only was it the norm, it was also celebrated. So, that culture had all kinds of different gods, and the better you were at uh, you know, attending the temple and committing the, the cultish acts, the more you were applauded and, and, and valued. And so they celebrated sin in this culture, which is not dissimilar to ours. So Jesus responds to this woman in a very interesting way, I think. Woman comes begging Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's not a typical response from a Christian position today. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, the, the, come on. So, That'd be the equivalent of um, someone in our culture who'd been living um, loudly in sin. Um, you know, maybe the. Um, any number of things where um, they come and they present themselves in a church setting needing help. Jesus says, um, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus confronts with, I want to know if you're really hungry. I want to know if you really want me, or if you just want to feel better. And it's really interesting to me that we're so cautious about being seeker sensitive, we're so afraid of being culturally confrontational. We're so afraid of offending people when they might be open to the gospel. You know, like if you're having a, co- a conversation with a coworker and they show the slightest sign that they might be interested in hearing about the gospel, we're like, "Woohoo, we're celebrating everything. We're telling them how great Jesus is." Jesus takes the complete opposite approach. Jesus finds the thing that might be the most offensive to the person and confronts them with that. Sir, I need help. Pow! But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. When you encounter hunger in a sinner's heart, nothing will turn them away from chasing Jesus down for their redemption. Nothing. Jesus confronts her in the most offensive way possible. I would would not give the children's bread to the dogs, and she says, you're right, I'm a dog, but I'll take whatever falls off your table. Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I think we should be better at confronting issues um, in the culture. But more than that, I think we should be good at confronting people on a heart level with what is the core, what is the root of their resentment toward God. I was talking to my dad yesterday, and he he knows of an older fellow, he's in his 80s, who is a lifelong atheist. He's angry at God, and my dad's starting to strike up this conversation with him and wants to tell him about the Lord. And my dad just mentioned something to him about faith and wanting to talk to him about faith, and the guy just went on this diatribe against Jesus and all this stuff, and my dad, was like listing off the arguments that the guy had, and he's six of them, and he's working up his answers. And I said, Dad, I have no doubt you could offer insights, you know, to those arguments that he probably has never heard, and maybe no one's ever had these conversations and these arguments with him. I said, but what do you think he was praying for as a boy that he didn't get, and so he became disappointed and embittered toward God? I was like, when you mention faith to someone and it launches them into a 10-minute exposition on why God is some concept that weak people made up, that's not the sign of someone who's just an atheist and who just doesn't have much to think about God. That's a sign of someone who's grown gradually more bitter with God over the years because something happened. And I just said, you know, if you think of it in the terms of a fight, why would you get in the ring and wrestle a guy that you can knock out with one punch? I so said, what if you asked the Lord, God, give me the one insight that is in this man's heart that's causing all of his anger, all of his bitterness, all of his sin, and see what God gives you. And I think I really want to see the church become a voice in the culture. I really want to see the, the church become unafraid to speak out on issues that are, that are facing our nation today and be willing to declare what does God say about things. But on an individual basis, we've got to get better at hearing from the Holy Spirit and rather than having arguments on issues, speaking supernaturally to the heart on issues that you shouldn't know about, which cause people to know that God must be and he must be with you and maybe you get the opportunity to share more with them. Paul, in the book of Acts, um, runs into a group of people who were in a culture where where they were idolatrous. They lived in sin. They celebrated it. We see it repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. But Paul, this is a really interesting thing. He says, He's he's telling them, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Pause. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul's speaking to a non-Christian environment. He's speaking to an irreligious environment, community, and he's telling them, you need to stop sinning. And I find that really interesting because often we're trying to be so culturally relevant and accepting that we, forgot to, we, we forget to tell people they have to repent. And Paul lays out a beautiful example of when we're dealing with non-Christians and even the irreligious, they still need to be told repentance is a part of your salvation your conversion verse 31 is a really interesting passage I ran into today I'm just going to point it out I'm not going to get hung up on it for too long but this is what um, Paul says you know the verse that Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour not the son but only the father later this is what Paul says Now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Interesting. We're always told, don't worry about it. Nobody knows the day or the hour, not the son, only the father, because that's what Jesus said when he was a man on the earth. But 20 years later-ish, Paul is making a declaration that God... Now is commanding all people to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Something to chew on. Lastly, I want to say, um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that mean? We, I always have thought that blessed are the peacemakers means those who can get along with other people and help other people get along with one another. They're not rocking the boat. They're not stirring things up. They're not making a mess. They're not out there banging the drums and confronting the culture. They're just they're getting along with people, and they're being liked and enjoyed and appreciated. And, but I think that's wrong, a wrong interpretation of that, because I don't think that Blessed are the Peacemakers was about making peace this way. I think Blessed are the Peacemakers is, blessed are those who aid in making peace between God and man. And often to make peace between God and man requires a confirma- confrontation between man and man about what needs to be done to make peace between God and man. So um, I say all that, just. I just think it's important that that you guys understand that as, as Christians, you should know your life will be full of confrontation where you are confronting someone else. That's, that's normal Christian living. The gospel is very offensive. Um, but I'll tell you from experience, nothing is offensive to a broken-hearted sinner. Nothing. When you know you are a sinful train wreck and you deserve nothing good, you deserve punishment and judgment and you're sitting in the midst of your filth and your squalor and your sin that you created, when God comes to you and tells you you repent, that's really good news. When God comes and he says, repent, go and sin no more, to the sinner who's sitting in the midst of his filth and he knows it, that's the best news he could ever hear you mean I could go and sin no more? I didn't think there was another option. That's the reality of the gospel. It's only offensive to those who don't think they need mercy. There's no offense to the brokenhearted sinner, and scripture obviously says, uh, a broken and contrite heart he will not reject. So just, just some things to keep in mind. Good segue there into um, Romans 8 and um, go and sin no more. So last week when Pastor was reading Romans eight thirty eight, 38, um, I was struck by something. I've read this verse so many times. Most of us have. It's one of our favorites. It's like, you know, it's one of the tattoos that everybody gets or, you know, the ones that we have on our, over the door, you know, because it's a good, nice, feel-goody um, feel-goody verse, but pastor was reading it on Sunday, and I, I saw something in it, or maybe I didn't see something in it that I'd never not seen before. Um, so Romans 8.38, you guys know the verse? Probably you can memorize it and recite it in multiple translations, but I'll read it for you in case you don't. <clears throat> for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cool, huh? But there's something missing from this list. Listen again, okay? See See if you can pick out what's missing. Okay, so Paul's, his his last statement is, nothing can separate us from Jesus. So just listen to the thing, something might be missing from this list, okay? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's missing from there? Hmm? Sin. Isn't that weird? What's the thing that separated us from God forever? Sin. So pastor's reading this this week, and I'm For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul didn't mention sin. What's the one thing we're told will separate us from Christ? Hmm. Paul's omission of sin from this list is a huge statement about his view of what sin is to the believer. Seriously, come on. He doesn't even list it as one of the possibilities of things that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus as a believer. Just stop for a second and think about that. I don't know, maybe you guys got different teaching, you know, growing up in like youth group and church stuff. I was always told that sin was the thing that would separate me from God. I knew that God would be with me through trial, and so a lot of the other things that Paul lists here, I know God's going to be with me. You know, we're going to have bad times and hard times. you got to remind yourself sometimes. But sin is the thing that's always going to separate you from God, right? Were you guys told otherwise or just me? He doesn't even include it in the list of things that might separate him from God. Do you think he forgot? This is one of the greatest legal minds who's ever been. Romans is a legal book. He's writing from a legal position. Okay? This was not an oversight. Paul's omission of sin from this list is a huge declaration for us who are believers. Because Paul, earlier in the chapter, makes a statement For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? Here's how Paul views it. Your sin is no longer able to separate you from God because you're in Christ. It's a little bit offensive, isn't it? Seriously, it's like, it sounds kind of good, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to swallow that. Let's go to Romans 7 quickly, okay? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to pull this out just so that you guys can. Um, here, I've got it over here. So, open your Bible to Romans 7 if you have a Bible. If you don't, just don't, then it's fine. Just kidding. Okay, so Romans 7. No, oh, I don't want the verse of the day. Okay. You ready? It's one of my favorite illustrations in the Bible. I might giggle and I might do a dance. All right, Romans seven one. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So Paul's saying, I'm a, I'm an attorney. I'm speaking to those who understand legal speak. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. It's fairly fairly. Straightforward statement, right? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Right? But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Okay? Right? Right? So just walk this through logically. A, a woman's married to a man. He dies. She's not legally bound in marriage to that man anymore. Correct? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Because now he's dead, so there's no one I can be bound by the law of marriage to, because the guy died. So now I'm released from the law of marriage to which I had an obligation. So the law of marriage, I had an obligation to stay married to this guy while he's alive, but he dies. So now my obligation to the law of marriage is released. I'm, I'm free of that, because he's dead. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. So she tries to go off and hook up with this guy. The law of marriage declares that she's an adulteress. She's violated that law of marriage. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. You guys tracking where Paul's going with this as it pertains to the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit and life? Me neither. Okay. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Eh? Okay. So this is, we're married. We have an obligation to the law of sin and death with God, right? We do. Okay, how do we have that? How did the law come the first time it come? Tenses came. It came to who? Who did the law come, home, come to? to? To whom? Moses, yep. Okay, so Moses got the law, and what happened? What did Moses and God enter into together? A covenant. What's a covenant? It's a binding relationship, right? So they were bound to one another. In a covenantal relationship under the law of sin and death, right? So, who was Moses bound to in this covenant, covenantal relationship? Now, what else is a covenantal relationship? Marriage. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. That's why he's using this as his example. So, they entered into a marriage, but not, not a, a obligated under the law of marriage, but under the law of sin and death. Who did? Moses and God. So now Paul, he's, he's explaining it like this, and you're going, where are you going, Pablo? Um, then he goes, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law of sin and death through the body of Christ. Wait, the body of Christ? What do you mean? Who did Moses enter the relationship with? God. God under the law of sin and death, right? How did they get freed from the law of sin and death? How? He's dead. Jesus, he's God. The covenant was entered into between Moses and the people and Christ, God, Jesus. That's why Jesus had to die To free them from the law of sin and death. They have no more obligation to the law of sin and death. Why? Because the one they entered the covenant into with is dead. They're freed from the law of sin and death. Which means sin can no longer separate from Christ... And sin no longer produces death for us because we're in Christ. We were freed from the law of sin and death. We were freed from that covenantal relationship. Now, Paul says, you can enter into the new covenant with him who was raised from the dead, the law of the Spirit and life. And under the law of Spirit and life, sin is not a part of the equation. Come on. It's now. It's life. It's obedience. Okay, God, what are we doing? Oh, I fell. I sinned. I messed up again. Oh, it's not separating you from Christ. It's not part of it. You know that you get up and you walk away from it because it's going to produce garbage in your life. But it does not separate you. From God any longer. You are freed from the law of sin and death, and you now live under the law of the Spirit and of life. I think, guys, this is one of the core truths of the gospel that we've lost in our society. And it leads to two things. One, it leads to a constant state of condemnation for Christians, a constant state of I'm living in failure. Because I think that every time I mess up, I'm being separated from Christ. Every time I mess up, I'm being separated from God. And Paul doesn't even list sin as one of the things that can separate us because he knows we've been completely released from the law of sin and death. We now live under the law of life and the Spirit. And the second thing it does, when we don't realize we've been released from the law of sin and death, sin still has power in our life because we're still submitting to a law that has been removed from us. And we think we're powerless because we think we still live under the law of sin and death. We think we're going to fail, and we do. We put great amounts of faith as Christians into the fact that we will sin. And Paul is making the case that, no, your mind is to be on the things of the Spirit and the things of life. You're freed from the law of sin and death. Think on these things and it will bear fruit. I am convinced that if we, as a church, and I don't mean our little church, I mean if the church, if we were to rediscover the truths of what the gospel is, if we were to rediscover. The, the full scope of what was actually accomplished at the cross, our, our, our church would be far different. Our country would be far different because ch- Christians would finally be living in power. Victory. Listen, I don't ever have to wonder when, when I'm talking to someone about a life a life sin issue. What do I mean by a life sin issue? Um, alcoholism is one. Depression is one. Um, sexuality sins are one. Homosexuality. Those are life sin issues, right? Those are those are sin issues that people don't think they could ever overcome, right? And by and large, in churches, you're told that you're going to struggle with this for the rest of your life. It's it's your lot. And I understand that there are times where that's the case. I do not believe that's the rule. That's the exception. And I don't ever have to hesitate because my experience, the experience of multitudes of others, and the testimony of Scripture contradicts that position that when you come to Jesus, all he can do is salve your conscience after you live in filth for the rest of your existence until he comes back. The testimony of Scripture contradicts that position. The Testimony of Scripture, Romans 6, says that by no means will we go on living in sin. Romans 6 declares that you will live in victory because you've set free from the law of sin and death. Not only does the Testimony of Scripture see it and state it, Clearly, read in 1 John about those who belong and they don't go on living in sin. But also the testimony of real life individuals that were entrenched in sin. I know people, not one, not two, but dozens, who lived in such sin. And I tell you, some of them spent decades running to altar calls incapable of getting victory. Week after week after week, they're at an altar call. They're begging for forgiveness. They're ashamed of their lives. And in one moment, the Spirit of God interacts with a human being and they're delivered completely. I don't ever have to think twice when someone asks me, so do you think that a person who's lived their whole life in homosexuality, do you think a person that, who's lived their whole life in alcoholism, do you think a person who's lived their whole life in pornography could be set free? Absolutely, without question. That's the norm. That's the norm of what the gospel is. Guys, there should not be any debate in the church about whether or not certain sins are acceptable or not acceptable. None of them are supposed to be acceptable. And Christians aren't supposed to live with any of them. We're meant to live in victory. It's not really a debate. There's not a debate in Scripture, and there's not a debate in the life of spirit-filled Christians who have been freed from every variety and type of sin you can imagine. Even some, after decades of living in it, wishing God would free them, in one moment he steps in and their life has changed. Nothing has ever happened that was more powerful than what happened at the cross. I'll take it one step further. If you think that as a Christian, or others as Christians, maybe not you, because you, maybe you just have a stronger will and you don't sin like other people do, but let's just say those other people, that their fate is to live the rest of their existence as Christians continuing to live in sin, constant failure. And it's just that's your lot, pal, you know? Go to the cross, ask Jesus to forgive you again, and that's pretty much your prayer life. Lord, please forgive me for what I did again last night and the night before and then 20 minutes ago. And And that's your prayer life is just forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And if you believe that that's the Christian norm and that's what's supposed to be, but at the end of their life, they'll be freed from that sin what you actually believe is that it's not Jesus that frees from sin and death, but it's death that frees from sin and death. So that theological position actually holds that death has greater power over sin than Jesus does. It it doesn't. Guys, just FYI. Um, Jesus has all the power and all the authority. And we were meant to, to experience more through the gospel in regard to living in victory. When we live in it, we can offer it. When you live in victory, you can offer victory. When someone is dealing with an area of sin and they're wondering, how does God feel about me? How does God view this? It doesn't matter because the moment you meet them, you're not going to be the same. The moment you meet them, that issue can be gone forever. That's that's the gospel. That's what these guys lived. That's what they saw in the lives of multitudes of people in the first century. People that they lived for years as temple prostitutes. Done, gone, changed in an instant. The demoniac. I mean, the stories are over and over and over in scripture. When we encounter God, Everything about us changes. Sin no longer holds us, and sin shouldn't even be considered as a possibility of things that can separate us from Christ Jesus. The law of sin and death has been removed. We live now by the law of the Spirit and life. What is that? It's communion with God. It's friendship with God. God, what are you doing today? What are you thinking about today? What things can I do with you? What are you thinking about, talking about, feeling? Let's, that's the law of the Spirit in life. I'm going to pray, and in honor of Easter, I'm going to ask God that he would make this so real to us, that he would make this our experience. Father, for any of us here who are still wrestling with issues, and, and we're questioning this, and we're going, Really? Really? Free from the law of sin and death? Like it doesn't apply to me anymore? Really? Really? Like I could live just in victory? This thing that I struggled with for five years could be gone from my life? Father, give revelation of what Jesus accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection. And give us your Holy Spirit to cause us to live in victory in a way we never have before. Father, thank you that you are willing to give up your most beloved, your son, for us. To reconcile filth to glory. Jesus, thank you for going through it. Thank you for being the firstborn of many brethren. Thank you for making a way for us to live like you. We love you, God. We worship you. We thank you this this weekend in particular, but let this be the mark of our life that we live in Resurrection Sunday. Amen.